listening to Blood on the Tracks, an exploration and celebration of film soundtracks and scores. Welcome to Blood on the Tracks, an exploration and celebration of film soundtracks and scores. I'm your host, Lee Russell, and this is episode 55. So, we are at part three of our three-part look at the soundtracks and scores from Amicus Productions, uh, checking out their films and what they had to offer music-wise here. We're arguably at their peak period now and also their rapid decline. They they kind of really hit their peak and then just kind of went right down the hill. Um, not to say that I hate their lesser films as they sort of, you know, as they became more diminishing returns every time, but uh, there is a noticeable difference in quality uh, once they sort of hit their peak and then start going down and... That being said, I think the music is still really good in pretty much everything that they put out. Uh, but yeah, we're we're getting into the uh, early to mid-70s here. And uh, arguably, their probably most well-known anthologies come out in this period. Uh, of course, uh, what they're best known for, probably their most famous anthology films, come out in this next couple of years. And they're sticking strictly of horror now pretty much. Uh, it's it's kind of what's been making them their money, so that's what they've been doing. Uh, at the very end, they do a slight format change uh, in an attempt to uh, get some business back, but it doesn't work because just like um, Hammer and later AIP, uh, they find that they just can't compete with the changes in the market. Uh, the drive-in theaters are asking for more and different stuff, and the drive-ins themselves are starting to die. Uh, big blockbusters and stuff like that are crushing these smaller companies. Uh, they just can't compete, uh, especially money-wise. They just can't put the money up on the screen. And, um, yeah, they were just kind of left behind in the dust, unfortunately, but that that's the way things went. Um, but we're going to focus on happy stuff. We're going to focus on the music itself and not the fact that Amicus isn't around anymore. Uh, this is the start of the Douglas Gamley era, and he would be the most prolific of the Amicus composers. He did more work for them than any other composer. Um, I think Elizabeth Lutyens was second place in this. Uh, her, of course, doing a lot of the early stuff for Amicus, here, we've got Douglas Gamley pretty much doing everything in the late period Amicus catalog, as well as a couple of things outside of Amicus. Um, Gamley himself was an Australian composer. Uh, he was highly influenced by Modest Mogorski. Um, Mogorski. I'm, I'm bad at pronunciation, if you hadn't guessed by this point. Um... But uh, he started with Rosenberg and Sabotsky in their City of the Dead, 1960. And that, of course, is sometimes considered an Amicus film, but it really wasn't under the Amicus banner. 
Uh, but it was kind of the birthplace of Amicus. And he also did, like I said, a late period stuff that's associated with Amicus. He was on the um, soundtrack and score for Monster Club from 1980, which is a... Was it Rosenberg or Sabotsky? I keep getting it fucking mixed up. One of those guys produced that. Um he wrote stock music for the BBC library. Uh, some of the stuff was used in the Doctor Who TV series. Uh, he wrote the soundtrack for Tron, 1982. And uh, going back to 1971, he was uh, on the score for, and now for something completely different, the uh, Monty Python film. Um, we're going to start out here on his work with the most famous of the Amicus films. I mean, hands down, I think most people look at this one when they think of Amicus. Um, Tales from the Crypt, 1972. And of course, this, based on the EC comics, uh, would go on to have a successful TV series in the 1990s that spawned one successful film, one not-so-successful film, and one film called Tales from the Crypt Presents Rituals or something that got buried because it was terrible. Uh, like there, there are versions of it where the Crypt Keeper is uh, cut totally out of it, and they just try to pretend it's not a Tales from the Crypt film. That's how bad it was. Um, but yeah, again, we're in happier times right now. So uh, here, and this is something Gamley is known for doing, like loving classical music and then uh, conducting his own versions, adapting his own versions for film. So here he's taking Johann Sebastian Bach's Toccata and Fugue in D minor, and he used that for Tales from the Crypt. And it's excellent stuff. I, I kind of like his sort of take on the stuff. It's a, it's still powerful, but it sounds a little less orchestral, if you understand what I'm saying. I don't know if I'm expressing myself properly here. I don't know if I can express it in in words. Um, it just it sounds a little, a little meaner, a little rougher around the edges, I think. I don't know. It, it, just, it just feels a little bit more raw, a little less refined, and I kind of like it that way. Uh, and then we're going to move on to another EC Comics property that was adapted. Um, so Tales from the Crypt from 72, same year they put out Asylum, another anthology. And here he's using Night on Bald Mountain and an excerpt from Pictures at an Exhibition 2, Gnomus. And of course, this is the modest uh, Morgorsky uh, stuff. And it's excellent. So we're going to listen to that stuff, and then we're going to come back for our next block of songs.
Okay, apologies there. Uh, in the last little bit, I said that uh, Asylum was one of the EC Comics uh, adaptations. Not true, of course. It's The Vault of Horror, which is coming up here in a minute. I, ju I just was kind of scanning ahead in my notes and kind of got mixed up. That's the problem. Um, but yeah, uh, so we're moving on here. We still more Douglas Gamley. Uh, you're going to see a lot of him pop up in this episode. So... Now we got the main title and a suite from The Vault of Horror. Um, I don't know if The Vault of Horror one actually lifts any stories from the actual comic. Uh, when you look at the Tales from the Crypt, that one actually lifted stories from the actual comic. And some of those went on to be redone as television episodes in the TV series years later. So, like, the most famous one would be uh, the one where Joan Collins is stalked by a, a demented man in a, a, you know, an axe murderer in a Santa Claus suit. Um, that one got remade for the TV series. But yeah, here, I, I can't recall if, if Vault of Horror actually takes any uh, stories from that or if they're all just new stuff. So yeah, I don't know. Yeah, we're, we're going to look at that and then we're going to finish off basically this half of the show with a suite uh, from And Now the Screaming Starts. And this is one of their rare forays into doing a sort of single narrative film again. Decided, oh, we're not going to do an anthology. And this is sort of a gothic horror, although it's got some slasher sensibilities to it. It's like, oh, we'll put some gore in this. It involves like a haunting. There's like a disembodied hand going around. You'll see that on the poster art and stuff like that. It, it's enjoyable. I kind of like it. I, I don't know if it all comes together all that well. They're trying to compete with Hammer here, and I, I think just Hammer did these, tended to do these better. I mean, you got your rare exceptions from Amicus, like the Skull, which is excellent. Um, but here, I don't know. It, it's, a, it's a little off. It's a little off, I'll say that, but I still enjoy it. Um, but yeah. We're going we're gonna to get into those, um, and when we come back, we'll have the second half of the show.
You ungodly warlock. Hello there. My name is Matt, and I'm a humble court bailiff in a courtroom designed to bring musical justice to all. Each week, we have a podcast with a judge and a jury, and we determine whether a song is guilty, not guilty, or not guilty by reasons of insanity. You know, something like, uh... Or maybe it's a cover of Tom Petty. You can find us wherever you find podcasts, iTunes, Google Play, all that stuff. Just look for songs on trial, please. Okay, I love you. Make good choices. You ungodly warlock. All right, we're back, and we're looking at our second half of the show here. We're getting into the mid-70s now. We're nearing, basically, we're basically at the peak. We're at the Amicus Peak, and it's going to start going down from here. But before then, we still got a couple real bangers as far as uh, their films go. First off, we're going to look at a suite from From Beyond the Grave from 1974. Again, more Douglas Gamley here. This is a banger. Like I said, I love this one. This is actually my favorite of their anthology horrors, and this is the last one they do. And I just think it works beautifully. It's got so many cool little things in it. Uh, apparently, it's it had a much lesser budget. Like there was there was a lot less money going into their films by this point. Um, but you don't really tell on the screen. It looks, I think, just as good, if not better, than some of their earlier stuff. It's got my favorite stories in it. Check that one out if you haven't. It's uh, especially like the, the the first and the last stories in, in that one are fucking great. Uh, there's a story in that one well as well with Donald Pleasance and his daughter uh, playing a you know playing uh, a father and daughter uh, characters in it. And there's a neat twist in that one. But um, yeah, can't say enough about this one. I love it. Uh, moving on, we're going to look at the entitles from Madhouse from 1974. Again, Douglas Gamley, and this one was, I think, distributed by AIP. At this point, Amicus had a deal with them to, you know, get some of their movies in North American shores. And uh, this is, of course, starring Vincent Price and Peter Cushing. And this is, I guess you'd say, it's pretty much a slasher film. People say proto slasher. I'd say it's pretty much just a slasher film. Although it's it's got some old school kind of um, things going on in it, and it it certainly sort of plays off of uh, Vincent Price's real life career, like how he is kind of viewed at this point as you know an aging horror actor and stuff like that. Uh, so kind of kind of a little bit of a wink and a nod to uh, how he was kind of perceived. And um, it's a fun little kind of like almost a giallo, too, in a way. It's kind of a it's, it's got a lot going on. I'll say that much. It, it's surprisingly a lot of fun. Also from this, we have When the Day is Done. And this plays during the ending credits in Madhouse. Uh, this is actually sung by Vincent Price. So, so uh, the music is done by Robert Ketcher and lyrics by Buddy De Silva. I don't know who actually recorded behind Vincent Price in this because both of those men were long dead 
before this showed up. Uh, Catcher was an Austrian-born composer and lyricist. Um, he was born like back in 1894 and died in like 1940-something, I believe. Um, De Silva was an American songwriter, film producer, and record executive who co-founded Capitol Records. And this version of the song they put together was just an English version um, of the original, which was Madonna du bist schoner, ails der schonenschen, <laughs> don't quote me on that one, um, by an Austrian composer, uh, or at least an Austrian tenor or something like singer, or something like that. I don't know if he composed it or not. Who knows? Uh, details were a little sketchy, but uh, the, the Austrian in question was named uh, Kammerschanger C. Richard Talber. I'm probably missing something there, but uh, the the song itself actually dates back. the The original German version dates back to like 24, uh, and the version that was popularized in uh, English uh, language version, I think, was first recorded in 26. I think Ben Crosby did a version of it as well. So yeah, it, it's it's rooted in uh, in a lot of history here. And then we got the main title from The Beast Must Die from 1974. Uh, Douglas Gamley here again, and this is a werewolf film. It's the uh, Agatha Christie-styled werewolf film, where it's like, who is the werewolf? Uh, everyone's brought to this uh, big game hunter's house in an isolated region, and he's like, I know I want to use a werewolf, and I'm going to suss you out and kill you. And, and everyone's got something to hide, so everything's a red herring. It's not 100% successful, but it's an interesting sort of blend of black exploitation and horror that Amicus was trying to do here. Um, the soundtrack is very, uh, it's got a, like a, a lot of wah-wah kind of guitar or whatever, uh, very black exploitation influenced, very jazzy as well. And it's famously got the gimmick in it, the werewolf break, uh, where the movie paused for 30 seconds and would show you stills of the different people who were suspects in the movie as a werewolf, and they were asking the audience, do you know who the werewolf is? And it's goofy. The werewolf itself looks really bad. It basically looks like a dog with a shag carpet glued to it. But it's kind of fun at the same time. I kind of dig it. Uh, for all of its faults, I kind of really dig it. Um, and we're going to play the werewolf break for you as well, before we get to our next block of songs. So, uh, yeah, check that out. <laughs>
day is done and shadows fall, I dream of you. When day is done, I think of all the joys we knew. That yearning, returning to hold you in my arms won't go, dear. I know, dear, without you, night has lost its charms. When day is done and grass is wet with twilight's dew, my lonely heart is singing with the sun. Although I miss your tender kiss the whole day through, I miss you most of all when day is Who the werewolf is? Is it Paul Foot? Jan? Davina? Dr. Lundgren? Caroline? You have 30 seconds to give your answer.
Made up your mind. Let's see if you're right. And now we come to the end of the show. We've got three more movies represented here by music. And this is the end of Amicus. This is where they decided we're going to turn to more action-adventure, monster movie kind of fare, which was also wildly outdated by this point, I think. I, I kind of think maybe they were thinking that the uh, 1970s adaptation of King Kong was going to start a trend of stuff that was going to be super successful, but it turned out not being. Uh, turns out that this genre can't kind of ended up going the way of like real cheap second pictures to main features and drive-ins and then got regu- regulated to uh, B-movie fare on VHS in the coming years. But uh, yeah, they decided, you know, we're going to take some Edgar Rice Burroughs stuff. The uh, the sort of hollow earth stuff that he did where, you know, there's a, there's a whole hidden world inside the Earth's core or, or whatever, or right under the crust at the very least. The whole, the what, what's the name of the fucking land? Pellucider or something along those lines. I'm totally butchering that, of course. But, uh, yeah, basically, they decided to make three films that were kind of based loosely on Edgar Rice Burroughs' things. And this kind of rounded out Amicus. They folded... Actually, they folded before their last film was even released. Um, so they didn't release even release it uh, themselves. But uh, this kind of ended the partnership of Sabotsky and Rosenberg. Uh, they went their separate ways... I think uh, I think I think it was Sabotsky who kept on making films. It was either him or Rosenberg. One or the other uh, bought up like a bunch of rights to Stephen King's stuff and did a bunch of his early adaptations and, and shit. So parting is such sweet sorrow. Uh, sad to see Amicus go here because I you know I deeply love fucking Amicus, but they had their run. They had their run. So we're going to look at uh, the main and end titles from The Land That Time Forgot from 1975. Uh, This is the last Douglas Gamley one for Amicus. Adios to you as well, sir. Then we go to the suite from At the Earth's Core from 1976. This is Mike Vickers, who is a guitarist, a flautist, and a saxophonist uh, associated with Manfred Mann in the 1960s. Um, he also worked on Dracula AD 1972, which is a pretty banging score as well, I, I'd say. Uh, one of the best parts of that movie, really. And also on Warlords of the Deep. And then we're going to finish off with a suite from The People That Time Forgot from 1977. This is done by John Scott, who was a British composer for TV and film. He did stuff that you may have uh, seen, like uh, Study in Terror, Trog, Wake and Fright, The Final Countdown, You're the Hunter from the Future, uh, the original Man on Fire. His, his mentor was Henry Mancini and got him into making, you know, getting into composing soundtracks and scores and stuff so he's pretty pretty fucking good and like i said this last film uh although it was made by amicus the company folded before it was released so aip actually took sole credit for this one so yeah i hope you guys really enjoyed this uh, series i enjoyed putting it together i know it took longer than usual my personal schedule has just been a bloody nightmare as of late and i've just not had the time nor the energy to necessarily get everything out on time. Uh, people who follow the regular They Must Be Destroyed on Sight podcast also know I've been having trouble just getting regular episodes of that out as of late. It's just real-life crap. 
I think we all know what that's like. But uh, I do appreciate you guys listening so very much. And uh, I'm not sure exactly what we're going to be doing next episode. Um, if you have suggestions, go to They Must Be Destroyed on site on Facebook. Join the group if you've not already done that. And just leave suggestions. Always open to, to uh, suggestions for future shows. And uh, take care of yourselves, guys. And we'll see you next month.
Blood on the Tracks. For further episodes, please go to tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through. 